0: Morning. if you have a Bible let's go to John or Jonah excuse me chapter three uh, Jonah chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Jonah and so we will uh, be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning if you don't have a Bible uh, you're more than welcome to use a black hardback underneath a seat around you I believe Jonah 3 will fall on page 775 um, Jonah is a uh, great little story, we've been going through it for the past two weeks, and so we'll continue on this morning in chapter 3, a very small chapter, just 10 verses, I figure one verse, uh, one minute per verse, we can get out of here in 10 minutes, uh, we'll see we'll see what we can do. Um, very early on in life, I was taught that life is full of surprises, and um, there were lots of surprising things about people, you'd constantly be surprised by different people, by different situations and circumstances in your life. When I was... 13 years old, I was in middle school, I had a sister who was 15 years old, and we were uh, going to a private school uh, with kids who were, for the most part, a little bit wealthier than we were, Um, but my family was moving upward, okay? We were getting more and more wealthy, and me and my sister were very much looking forward to enjoying the fruits of that wealth as it continued to accumulate, And, and one day we came home after school, and my parents had kind of been working up towards this big surprise or reveal, and they had bought this cookie cake which is a great way to surprise somebody. And they had this cookie cake, and they gathered us around, and they said, we've got this big, life-changing surprise for you. And they opened up this cookie cake, and it was a picture of a house or some sort of building, and then some sort of bird. And me and my sister both got very excited, and we gasped, and, and, and we were really jumping upside, up, up and down and excited. And my parents said, what you, what, what's going to happen? What's your guess? And we said, we're moving to a bigger house. And my parents said, no. That's not, that's not what it is. And we said, yeah, we're moving to a bigger house, and the, maybe it would be a pool and a movie room. And I said, no, don't look at the building. What, what else is on the cookie cake? And we said, a bird? Is there a bird at the new house? We don't, we don't understand. They said, no, it's a stork. They said, you're having a baby brother. And even as a 13-year-old, I went, that seems irresponsible. <laughs> You have not seen my Christmas wish list. It's going to be hard to pay for all those toys as well as a newborn child. <laughs> my parents had a little brother. They surprised us with him. When I was 13, my sister was 15. Our toys went towards paying for a little one. Um, they uh, <coughs> ended up adopting a few years later, too, which was all on them. That's premeditated. Okay, there's no excuse. That's not an accident. Um, so, they had my little brother. Uh, it was a big surprise. Actually, me and my sister had actually called it. Um, I don't know if you remember the show Seventh Heaven, uh, really popular back, back in that time. Um, everything I learned about a pregnant women, I learned from Seventh Heaven. <laughs> so, the basic premise of the show is about a pastor and his wife and family. And she'd gotten pregnant and was very cranky and emotional. And so, lesson learned as a little boy. Uh, if a woman is cranky and emotional, they're pregnant. And so for a few months, my mom had been a little cranky and emotional. I mean, my sister had, like, speculated, like, does this mean she's pregnant? Like, we see this on the show. Turns out we were right. Um, had, the, had the little brother. Uh, life's full of surprises. My parents are full of surprises. And what I've learned as I have grown in my Christian walk and, and, and kind of walked with Christ over the years is that God himself is a God full of surprises. Um, And and life is still full of surprises. Um, We talked last week about detours we take in our life. Jonah takes this detour uh, away from what he thinks um, God's will is for his life and into the belly of a fish. And God even there has a plan for him. Um, God is, as revealed in Jesus, a very surprising God. Uh, I think as Christians we need to constantly be cultivating an attitude of surprise. Um, That when we come to worship, when we come to celebrate what Jesus has done for us on the cross, it's not something we take for granted. Uh, It's not something that seems normal or... you know just run of the everyday run of the mill um, type of stuff to us but that we with new eyes and fresh eyes are surprised and awed by what God has done for us in and through Christ Um, so Jonah the book of Jonah is a story full of surprises I think that's one of the reasons um, it's such a well-loved story as we can relate to the surprises and the twists and turns that we find in Jonah if you remember the story or have been walking through with us Jonah is told to go preach to his enemies to the Um, the capital city of the biggest and baddest empire around. They would end up destroying Israel in the future. Jonah does not think this is a good idea, so he runs in the other direction. He gets on a ship, headed in the other direction. God sends a storm. Um, The storm comes. The sailors throw Jonah off the boat. He gets swallowed by a fish. Last week we saw he was praying in the belly of the fish. We ended. He had been vomited up onto the dry land, and that's where we pick it up today. In Jonah chapter 3 with verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows... God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now there are three, I think, big surprises in this chapter, three surprises in the story. So I want to walk through them one at a time and see some of the lessons that they teach us about God and about our lives. Um, the three surprises are this. One I think is surprising that God goes back to Jonah. After his disobedience and after his situation on the ship, getting thrown off, getting into the belly of the fish. Um, So God's reaction to Jonah is surprising. The Ninevites' reaction to Jonah is equally surprising, um, how they receive the message that he preaches in their city. And then lastly, the third surprise, God's reaction to the Ninevites, I think is surprising. And I think all three of these surprises have something that they can teach us. So first, God's reaction to Jonah you see here in the first couple of verses, um, God comes to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Arose, go to Nineveh, and call out against them. This is a repetition of the very first call that we got in Jonah chapter 1. Um, God comes to Jonah again with the same plan, despite the detour that he's taken, despite the disobedience that he has um, walked down. Uh, and God comes to him and says, You're still my man. We're still going this route. Um, now, this is very surprising. If I'm God at this point, I'm firing Jonah. Okay, there are a lot more qualified prophets out here. We've described Jonah as a kind of holy screw up, right? As as kind of this joke of a prophet. Uh, Jonah does everything wrong, and yet God continues to come back to him, um, despite his mistakes, despite the struggles that he's been in. Uh, if I'm God, I'm looking for other prophets. Even these sailors, right? From the, these Gentile sailors, they seem like better candidates to go to Nineveh mm-hmm. and to go spread the gospel. But God comes back to Jonah and says, "You're my man." Um, we see that God, throughout the scriptures, including here in Jonah, is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. Um, he's a God who is continually sending his people on mission despite the detours that they've taken in their lives, despite the bumps um, that they've hit on the road as they have walked through life and followed after him. Um, you can think of the Apostle Peter who followed Jesus. Peter was a man who uh, had his fair share of bumps and trials and tribulations along the way. He would end up betraying Christ three times and yet even then afterwards Christ comes up to Peter and says you are my man you are the one who's going to go forward I'm leaving the church in your hands you're going to lead this thing into the future Jesus at one point calls Peter the son of Jonah and scholars have always wondered why he calls him this Uh, is Jonah shorthand for John which perhaps was Peter's father's name why is the son of Jonah Um, it's likely that Jesus is playing here with Jonah the character Peter's a lot like Jonah Uh, Peter is a disobedient uh, man who yet is continually called by Jesus, by God. Um, Peter, as well, like Jonah, has to struggle with this inclusive vision of God's love. Um, So if you remember, Peter gets a vision that the Gentiles can receive salvation along with the Jews, and he has to struggle with what that means. Jonah here is struggling with what it means for the Ninevites to receive God's grace. Um, So in a lot of ways, Peter and Jonah are um, similar. The scriptures are full of examples of God using um, people who have failed and people who have gone through tough times and struggles and temptations um, and half-hearted obedience. If you look here in the, the story in chapter 3, so Jonah has been disobeying up until this point. For the first time in the story, Jonah starts to obey, and his will starts to align with God's will. So he goes to Nineveh, he starts preaching. But even then, if you look closely, it appears to be, at best, like a half-hearted obedience. Um, so one of the interesting things about this story is we're not told exactly... What God told Jonah to say. Um, we're not given that information. So, so we know God told him to go preach this message, but we're not given the exact words that God gave Jonah to preach. So when Jonah goes and preaches in Nineveh, we are unaware whether he's actually saying what he was supposed to say or not. And you might be excused for thinking perhaps Jonah's not saying what he's supposed to say. Let's look at the message Jonah preaches here. It's the worst sermon ever delivered. <laughs> Jonah sets the bar very low for preachers everywhere. Jonah comes into the city. Remember, he's a foreigner. Uh, this small little Hebrew tribe uh, comes into this great city, the, the great city on earth at the time. And he calls out in, in just a few words, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's no mention of God. <laughs> There's no mention of which God. There's no mention of why they're being overthrown. There's no mention of a chance for them to be saved or a chance for them to... This is just the, the message that Jonah gives him. Um, Jonah walks around. You can imagine it as kind of half-hearted obedience. Jonah is like, fine, I'll go and I'll do it, and walking around the city kind of mumbling to himself. Forty days and it'll be over. Don't, don't listen to me. It's not a big deal. Forty days and it'll be over. Forty days and it's going to be over. Jonah, even through his half-hearted obedience, is used here by God in a powerful way. Um, even through his um, bumps and detours in the road. We we talked last week how um, even in all of our circumstances, the ones that seem rough to us, God is working to shape in us Christ-likeness. And God is actually using us even in sometimes our disobedience and even in sometimes our bumps in the road. Uh, Jonah here again proves this principle, even with his half-hearted obedience, um, this kind of terribly vague message um, sermon to the Ninevites. God works and God uses him. Um, I think it's like God to use people who have been swallowed up by fish, to use people who have gone through a kind of messy road. Uh, It's through the scriptures, it's through church history. Um, And really it makes sense, right? Most of us live in a kind of false narrative where the world is pretty much a safe and good place. And good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And as long as we're good and responsible upper-class Americans, things will turn out mostly good for us. And what has to happen is God has to somehow break that vision inside of us. And, and in so doing, create empathy in us for other people, for people who are hurting, for injustices that are happening around the world. And often he does that by allowing us to go through those things. I mean, usually the thing that hurts you the most is going to be the way that God uses you to heal others. Um, we're told in 2 Corinthians that God... Comforts those who are afflicted so that they can go comfort others who are afflicted. Um, God meets us in our pain, in our struggles, in our trials, so that we'll be used powerfully in other people's trials. I mean, if you think about who leads the way for um, equal rights or for injustices to be stopped, it's usually the people who've been affected by those injustices, who've been affected by that inequality. Um, The people who are standing up for the rights of people with Down syndrome and autism usually are not people who have never met a person with Down syndrome and autism. It's usually the parents who never knew anything about it but then had a son or a daughter and realized how the system was kind of built and set up against them. And now they're organizing. Now they're campaigning. Now they're spreading awareness. Um, It's uh, the person who went through the disease or who had a family member with the disease – or a person who went to that country and saw the poverty and experienced and formed relationships with those people in that country. All of a sudden, now they're the spokesperson. All of a sudden, now they're given that mission and sent to go forward. God often works in us and through us, through our struggles, through our detours, through the time that we spend in the belly of the fish. Um, it's surprising that God comes back to Jonah. Jonah is a man. Uh, at all times, um, the Lord is nothing if not persistent. And it seems like throughout the scriptures, God is consistently coming to creation and to his people and saying, I want to send you, I want to send you, I want to send you, I want to work in you and through you. No matter what's happened, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what people have done to you, in this moment, I want to work in you. And in this moment, I want to work through you. And it's our responsibility at every second, at every day, every hour, every new circumstance to accept that and to go forward with the Lord. So often we get caught up in our past, we get caught up in what's happening to us, and we are, uh, forget this, this, this truth that we're called out. We forget this truth that at every moment God is seeking to meet us where we are and move us forward. Um, in this new conversation, in this new circumstance, in this new day, uh, God comes back to us and says, You're my person. I want to work in you and transform you. I want to work through you. God comes back to Noah, or to Jonah, excuse me, and, and I think that's a surprising truth. The second thing that's surprising, perhaps the most surprising thing in the story, is that the Ninevites believed Jonah. Um, they responded to this message, which again is not winning awards for sermon, prep, or delivery. Um, and, and so they believed God. You'll notice here the word in verse 5, God is the generic word for God, G-O-D. Um, Earlier in the story, we've seen the word LORD in all caps. This is the personal name for God, Yahweh. Um, The Ninevites have no idea what's going on. And so they respond the best way they can, which is groping in the dark, right? I mean, they believed God, and they do their best to respond faithfully. The sailors, though, have it off much better from chapter 2. You remember the sailors uh, knew who God was. He was Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, the God of the Hebrews. And they made vows to him, and they were able to call out his name. Um, the Ninevites here respond um, with the best that they can do and it's actually fairly impressive Um, when Jonah gets brought up and people talk about Jonah usually the conversation turns to how historical is Jonah how how much can we believe this really happened in history if you had a video camera could you watch a man being swallowed by a whale and then three days later being vomited up or is this just a story is it a parable of sorts What's funny to me, though, is actually the biggest miracle in the book of Jonah, I don't think it's the fish. I think it's the city converting after Jonah's message. I think that's the harder pill to swallow historically. That this huge, great empire, this strong, powerful city, um, all the way up to the king, from the greatest to the least, is going to transform from the inside out um, because of this mumbling mumbling prophet who's wandering around um, one day into the city. Um, but the city is transformed. The word of the Lord is powerful. Um, this is God's kind of M.O. Of working in the world. He comes in small and weak um, ways. He comes through one small person and transforms cities from the inside out. Um, this is how it happened with his son. He sends one. And it's not in power and it's not in might and it's not with force and it's not with this grandiose show. Um, but it's a small seed that's planted and that sprouts and grows into something bigger than you could have ever imagined. Um, the Ninevites... <clears throat> model for us what repentance looks like, what it looks like to turn from evil, what it looks like to turn from disobedience and to turn towards God. In this way, the story sets us up in a surprising way in, in which we are supposed to compare ourselves to the Ninevites and wonder if we repent in the same way as faithfully as the Ninevites, which is shocking. Again, the Ninevites are an evil people. If, if you don't keep that in the front of your mind reading the story, you miss the point of the story. If anyone on the face of the earth deserved to be destroyed, it was the Ninevites. I mean, these are, these are the most horrific people alive at the time. Jonah is not a small-minded bigot who just has this grudge against this people group. Um, this is truly the enemy of God and God's people. Yet God is, is sending grace to them and seeking to save them and redeem them, and they repent for us. It'd be like if I told you a story um, where you and I as American Christians were the butt of the joke, and ISIS was the example to follow. Um, we would be shocked and kind of offended and kind of confused. They're the enemy. They're everything that's wrong with the world. But yet in this scenario, they're the ones modeling faithfulness for us. It's the Ninevites here who repent. They turn from their wicked ways. They examine their hearts and they examine their minds. They realize there's violence on their hands. And then they outwardly follow through in this display of need for God and this display of um, forgiveness and the display of, of, of showing God that they are dependent on him. And so they are covering themselves in sackcloths. They are fasting. Fasting is prayer for the belly. Uh, it's a way of communicating with your guts um, that you are empty and that you need the Lord to come and to rescue you. Um, the king himself publishes this um, decree throughout the land. Um, we have actually unprecedented repentance here. Um, which is that the animals themselves are called in to join in the act of repentance. Even the cows are mooing out their need for God here. Um, This is unprecedented. Israel itself never reaches a level of repentance like this. Um, God's chosen people never step up to the plate quite in the way the Ninevites do in this story. It's surprising and it's shocking. And in this season of Lent that we're walking through before we celebrate Easter, it's this time that Christians have set up intentionally for us to practice the art of repentance, to look through our own lives, look at our own hearts, and wonder what evil is on our hands, what violence is in our minds, what, what habitual sins are we harboring, what mistakes have we made, what do we need to bring to Christ in confession, how might we fast, how might we repent, how might we um, come back to the Lord. We're shown through the Ninevites that repentance is the path to life. Um, if, you, if you want to find life, if you want to find joy, if you want to find peace, the path there, the stepping stones to get to that location is repentance. Um, we often think of you know, wanting to make the world a better place and, and wanting to change the world. And, and the, the kind of temptation of our time is to think that that's going to happen through political legislation. If we get the right person in office, then things will trickle down and change the way it's supposed to change. I think the scriptures, though, are going to say at all points that's not the way that God works. Um, You don't, God doesn't work through coercion and through legislation. He works through conversion uh, and and repentance. The way that things change is through repentance. The city of Nineveh changes because they repent. They turn back to the Lord. In our own lives, this is how it works. This is actually just a corollary of a point we made last week. If you remember last week, we said that sin is often its own punishment. um, That sin inherently is self-destructive. God doesn't have to usually punish us arbitrarily for sin. Sin by its nature brings death. God is life and goodness and peace and joy. And so when we turn from him to sin, all there is to be found is death. It's not an arbitrary ruling that God gives us when he punishes us for sin. It's just the way the world exists. There's no life to be found outside of God. The corollary to that point is if you are outside of life and want to find life, there's one path to get there. It's to turn back to God, to repent and find your way back towards him. The Ninevites do this. I think it's surprising, but I think it's a, a model for us to follow. So God goes back to Jonah, surprise number one. The Ninevites believe Jonah, surprise number two. And then the third surprise here is how God reacts to the Ninevites. Again, keeping in mind the kind of people the Ninevites were, God reacts by, um, we're told, relenting of his plans to destroy them. Um, it's funny that the message Jonah gives them, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, um, The translation there, I think, spins it a little bit negatively. The word for overthrown really is like changed or turned around, overturned. And it could go either way. It's ambiguous. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. So you wonder, right, is Jonah preaching what God has told him to preach? Or is he purposely being vague or trying to give a negative message here? Or I wouldn't put it past God to give him this message that Jonah thinks is worse news than it actually is. So Jonah is convinced his mind, 40 days, this place is going to be different. And God's chuckling and going, yeah, it is but not in the way that you think. They're going to respond. I wouldn't put it back to God to do that, to give him this message with this play on words here. Um, Jonah says, 40 days and things are going to change. And sure enough, things change. Um, we're told the, the, the king who's doing his very best here, Jonah's not consulting with him. Jonah's not giving him advice. He says, who knows? Let's do our best. Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. Turn from his fierce anger. The Hebrew here is his burning nostrils. The very literal language Hebrew is. God's burning nostrils. Maybe they'll they'll stop and, and we might not perish. And we're told, all of a sudden we get God's perspective on this scene, which is what we need at this point. And we're told that God saw what they did. He recognized their repentance, how they turned from their evil way. And then God, we're told, relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Two things here. One... Um, It's ironic here that God ends up relenting from the disaster he has proposed um, for the nation of Assyria. Because not too long after this story takes place, God will eventually use Assyria to destroy Israel for not repenting for their sins. God will come to Israel and tell them the same thing. Repent or Assyria is going to come and destroy you. And they don't and Assyria comes and destroys them. Here though the roles are reversed and again it's the bad guys, it's the Samaritan who's the good neighbor. Um, the role is reversed in this situation. Also, this word for relent. Okay, God decides not to go through with the disaster that he had threatened to the um, Assyrians, to the Ninevites. Again, I think your English translation here in the ESV tones this down a little bit for you. Um, this is a word used in the Hebrew and the Old Testament multiple times. It can be translated and has overtones at times of changing your mind, um, of regretting, of turning course. It could even be translated repenting. Um, God here seems to repay the Ninevites' repentance with repentance of his own. They relent from their evil, and so he relents from the evil he had planned for them. This is the theme that I think we overlook throughout the scriptures. In fact, I wrote a paper on it in grad school. If you need something to help you to sleep at night, I'd be happy to send it to you. Um, throughout the Old Testament, there's this theme, starting way back at the very beginning of Genesis, when God regrets making humans, which is an interesting statement in itself. There's this idea that God is flexible in his thinking, that God is surprisingly open to human actions and human decisions, surprisingly flexible in his plans, depending on how humans will react. Um, In fact, I would say, uh, and I don't have the numbers for you, I'm pretty confident in it, um, there's much more actual Old Testament text that would say God changes his mind um, than Old Testament text that would assure you God doesn't change his mind. Um, there are a few very classic texts that say God's not like a man and that he changes his mind. But those texts are always qualified and connected to a promise. So God promises the Israelites that David will be their king. And God says, now I'm not like a man in that I, I go back on my promises. David will be the king. And I will send a savior through David. But what you find throughout the Old Testament are these if-then conditions when it comes to punishment. Um, it seems like God is very flexible when it comes to judgment. He says constantly to the nation of Israel and to other nations, if you repent, I will relent of the disaster. And if you don't, the disaster will come your way. God's flexible nature when it comes to judgment is based on his unflexible character. If that makes sense, if you can track with that. It's because God is unflexibly gracious and loving towards creation that he seems to jump at any chance to withhold disaster from people. Um, there's an Old Testament scholar, Jane Oswald, who says this. Um, there's one situation in which Yahweh can be depended on not to keep his word. If he has announced destruction because of sin and has given almost any good reason to change his mind, he will gladly do so. Mm-hmm. The best of such reasons is repentance on the part of the sinner, but another is intercession. Mm-hmm. If you read the Old Testament, there are times Moses takes his turn, Abraham takes his turn, where they successfully argue God out of killing people just by interceding on their behalf. The people themselves don't even repent. It's an intercessor who comes to God and says, there's got to be a better way than this. And they have this dialogue. And we're told God changed his mind. God relents of the disaster that he had foretold, that he had proclaimed. God jumps at the chance to be flexible and to give his grace towards sinners. Um, God repays repentance with repentance. He is unflexibly good towards his creation. If we repent, there's life to be found. No one has ever decided to repent and ever decided to turn towards Christ to find him unwilling to accept them. No one has ever made small steps toward the father to find the father withholding their requests in advance at a distance. Think of the prodigal son and the father, the the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. The son leaves the household. And when he comes back, he's welcomed into his father's arms. At no point was there ever a change needed in the father's attitude towards the son. The only thing that needed to change was the son needed to turn his direction. He needed to come back to the father. And when he came back to the father, the father didn't have to decide and make a decision on whether he was going to accept him back or not. The father ran out to meet him and grabbed him. This is what's happened to us in the person of Christ, through the person of the Spirit deposited in our hearts, inside of us, indwelling dwelling within us. God has surprisingly come to us to save us and to redeem us through the person of Jesus. Um, we, perhaps for good reason, should not expect the God of the universe to give up his very own life, his very own breath, to save us, to redeem us. But as Christians, on Sundays when we come and we worship, this is what we are Proclaiming. We are um, surprised at how God has dealt with us, at how God reacts towards us. The gospel for Jonah, we'll see this even more next week in chapter 4, is better news than he wants to imagine. He is more comfortable if, if the good news is a little more exclusive, just him and his tribe. It stretches him and makes him uncomfortable that the Ninevites can be included in this. And again, I think for you and I, the gospel continues to be better news than we could even imagine as we come to the cross, as we come to the table, as we remember and think about what God has done for us in Christ. We we need to, I think as Christians, cultivate this attitude of surprise, of awe and wonder, where, where it is not just another thing to us that we run through in our minds every week. Yes, God died for us. Yes, Jesus has come to save us. But it's something where we are truly shocked and truly awed. Something where we go, I don't I don't know how this works, I don't know why this works the way it is, um, but this is the best news that anyone could have ever delivered. Um, and this is a uh, news that will be transformative in my life, and, and that will be transformative through my life. So this morning as we worship, I pray that our eyes would be opened up to, to see the uniqueness of God's work of salvation, um, to see that uh, the path to life lies in repentance. And that no matter where you are, no matter what... Has happened to you? No matter what happened to you an hour ago, or a week ago, or a year ago, or 50 years ago, um, God in this moment wants to meet you. Um, he's got a second chances and third chances, and fourth chances, and fifth chances, and He wants to meet you, and He wants to work in you, and He wants to work through you. Um, what's required of us is to turn towards Him, and 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 we're assured that we'll be met with loving arms as we turn towards Him. So in just a moment, you'll be invited up to the table to celebrate communion. This is our chance. Uh, as a church body to turn towards him to, to come towards the table uh and, and in so doing we believe that we will be received uh loved and then sent out into the world uh, to be his, his messengers and his people would you pray with me